Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's the Wonky Show. It's pandemic, 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 as the sector starts to get to grips with life in lockdown and an utterly transformed world. It's all coming up. If the, if the sector looks as if it's trying to kind of muscle in to hoover up students, um, that will be very unedifying. And at a time when I think the sector has got a real opportunity to put some reputational credit back in the bank through this crisis, um, I think that that would be uh, very unwise. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Mark Leach, Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, recalling from my spare room. Yes, it's a lockdown special and probably the first of many. We plan to continue to bring information on the situation for universities amid the global pandemic for as long as you'll listen and as long as we have something to discuss. Remember, you are not alone and we're here to help in any way we can. To help me untangle all the latest developments this week, we have three amazing guests. In his bedroom, I think, we have Nick Hillman, uh, Director of Happy. Nick, tell us... One thing that's given you some cause for optimism in the last week, please. Oh, good morning, Mark. Gosh, that's a a, a difficult question. I mean, one uh, cause for optimism has been the weather. uh, And another has actually been spending a bit more time with my children, which has had its challenges, but has also been a delight. And in her kitchen, we have Mary Cunnock-Cook. Mary, tell us one thing that's given you some optimism over the last few days. Oh, I've had a a wonderful time um, homeschooling my two daughters, uh, aged 27 and 30. Who are, who are sheltering here in the Oxfordshire countryside. But like Nick, the wonderful weather and the, the dogs are loving their walks and um, the bright sunshine certainly cheers us all up. And in his attic, we have Wonky's own Jim Dickinson. Jim, tell us something that's cheered you up. Uh, so, so our kettle packed, packed up yesterday morning, uh, but uh, it, it, it appears that the in-laws had a spare. So when we dropped the shopping off on the, on the patio, we were able to pick up an old kettle, which has cheered the house up no end. Right. So as panic about the pandemic has set in inside the sector about next year, some universities decided to shore up applications with a new wave of unconditional offers, only for the university's minister, OFS and UK, all to slam down hard on the practice this week. Mary, tell us what's going on here. Well, uh, exams have been cancelled and um, a process has been set out for students to get their exam results. And and so these will be awarded rather than assessed grades. It's actually a process that awarding bodies have used for for years. They use it to deal with people who've perhaps, you know, got sick in the middle of their exams and so on. Um, But now they've got to deliver this process at massive scale for hundreds of thousands of students taking multiple subjects um, using, you know, it's a a non-standard process and it's never been tested at that scale. So it'll be a huge test for them to stand up something that's fair. um, And they'll be using multiple non-automated data feeds um, from schools. So that in itself is a huge challenge. But assuming that they do do this successfully, the exam grades um, awarded should be broadly fair, um, in aggregate at least. But of course, we could expect many more than the usual kind of individual unfairnesses uh, to, to creep in. Um, <clears throat> so the theory that confirmation and clearing um, can 
proceed on a reasonably normal basis using the awarded grades um, is not proven in, in, in my view. Um, confirmation clearing has always been a micro market that the sector understands quite well. Now, I think there are just too many unknown unknowns. Um, it's fairly clear that international recruitment is going to take a massive hit in the short and probably the longer term too as global recession digs in. Um, and I think this will have a big impact on behaviours in the domestic market with competition to recruit home students um, just uh, increasing really sharply. <clears throat> uh, as you said, Mark, some universities, mostly at the lower tariff end of things, have started uh, converting conditional offers to unconditional, but I expect they've stopped pretty quickly now that the OFS has issued stern guidance and uh, I think a two-week moratorium. Um, at the higher tariff end of things, um, these are the universities who are, are most likely to be hit by international recruitment. Um, so it's quite likely that they could be have a, a higher appetite for uh, recruiting domestic students at slightly lower grade levels. Um, <clears throat> and that, of course, is going to uh, create real problems for universities lower down the pecking order. I, I must admit, I've wondered whether the OFS might need to impose some kind of soft number control on recruitment just to level things out a bit, but nobody's said anything about that yet. Um, and then the biggest unknown is how students are going to behave. <clears throat> will, will they decide to wait a year till things settle down? Uh, will those who've concentrated on really upping their game in these last few months before the exams they thought they were going to sit, will they uh, want to actually wait and have a chance to show what they've uh, done by taking their exams when they happen in September or whenever. And then the whole kind of releasing and switching dance that goes on in clearing, is that going to increase or reduce um, given that people will be, you know, looking for surety and perhaps be less likely to take a chance on things? And of course, will universities even be able to open at the start of the autumn term. So I think this is a really worrying time for students, um, but also for universities who are going to have, you know, all the financial uncertainties created by the crisis, um, exacerbated by such an unpredictable admissions round. I did just see one potential upside, which could be an uptick in postgraduate recruitment. Um, if graduates are thinking that uh, getting a job <laughs> when they graduate this this summer is going to be very difficult. But I, I don't know what others uh, think about all of this. It looks pretty grim to me. I, I agree with a lot of the things that Mary has said. Um, I also think, though, that the incentives for graduates to stay on and do postgraduate study might apply to an 18-year-old who was thinking they were going to join the labour market. It might make them a bit more likely to go to HE instead. Um, I, I worry a bit about the new provision for delivering grades. Um, uh, I don't want to caricature young men too much, but when I taught at an all-boys school, there was a particular tendency among the boys, uh, compared to the girls at an all-girls school I taught at as well, um, to leave everything to the last minute, the exam. And I worry if, I, I do worry a little bit whether boys in particular could lose out by the new way of awarding grades. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, Nick. Um, I think we, uh, you know, one of the things that the awarding bodies will use in order to get some sort of awarded grades out for everybody is they will use statistical information um, as well as what teachers and predicted grades and other bits of evidence are produced. So uh, I would have thought that they will um, they will manage that because they will they will know that from from the data. Is there a way in which it could help disadvantaged students? Because 
they'll have to err on the side of generosity when when there's question marks, surely. And just as universities use contextual offers, because we know some people from disadvantaged backgrounds underperform against their true ability, I, I just wonder if there's some elements in which it could actually help some of the most disadvantaged applicants. And I don't know, Mary, you will know whether there's any, any life in that. But, but if you err on the side of caution, I just wonder if it could help some people while hindering. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, that's a, a, an optimistic view. I think my worry is, is just how much standardised data the awarding process can handle, given that it's having to stand up a completely new, untested process. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, w- would they be able to see that much detail about individual students who come from more disadvantaged backgrounds um, and again I think they will be using statistical analysis not just at a national level but at a school level as well and that perhaps will help kind of scoop up those who've um, you know come from schools with a with a high level of deprivation in their cohorts um, but it's uh, you know we won't be able to scrutinize the process um, until afterwards when we see what the results look like. It, it, it's fascinating. I mean, assuming we do get awards into the system somehow, and, and as you say, we're, we're, it will take us some time to work out, I guess, how fair that process all was when, when it's all said and done. Um, it's a kind of a critical element on, on getting September up and running. But we still don't yet know the trajectory of this pandemic and the uh, social distancing measures and other things that might impact on uh, applicant behaviour um in in all this kind of awards or no awards i mean jim what do you think if if you're a student thinking about going in september to university um what would you be thinking kind of this month well i mean look the, the if if you keep your eye on twitter with the right searches um you don't have to sort of guess you can tell so um the morning after the a level stuff was announced uh, by about early lunchtime, there were students jumping up and down with glee because their university had somehow managed to determine all of the complexities and all of the difficulties and all of the factors in offer making and converted their offer from uh, conditional to unconditional. And I've been pretty scathing on social about that because there were then thousands of students who weren't in that position feeling really reassured. And crucially, it looked like market share grab when the one thing you want at this point is for civil servants and the regulator to, and, the, and the sector to be making a united case for what potentially needs to be bailout funding in the next few months, rather than various people having to run around and scrabble to stop people grabbing market share. Now, I don't know whether that was anyone's intention, uh, uh, even if it wasn't. I just think, you know, that that has been the impact and that and that's been regrettable. But if you look at what students have been saying over the past few days, on the assumption that we will still be in and out of social distancing, and if you look at the mess that we've got now around student accommodation, and we may well end up talking about that later, I don't know why any student would sign on the line and enrol in September if they could possibly avoid it. They don't know where they'll be. They don't know what they're going to get. They don't know what the experience is going to be like. And certainly, if it's all online, I, I am not in any way denigrating the incredible efforts that the sector have put in over the past week to start delivering stuff online. But the idea that that will be in any way good enough by September, I think, is for the birds. And so, if it's possible, I don't understand why a student wouldn't want to defer for a year. And and, and that goes for international students and home students, as well as both new students and continuing students but but jim can they afford to do that you know a, a lot of you know a lot a lot of the people who take the so-called gap year 
are people who can afford to take a gap year. And for, for, for many students, it's just not an affordable option, particularly when uh, who knows what will be happening to the to the job market in between. You know, how are they, at least if they're at university, whether online or in person, they're having some living costs paid. Well, I, I, th- I think that's true. But if you think about the way in which a family will suddenly have to weigh this up, lots and lots of families will, to some extent, expect the boomerang effect. And that regardless of when the three years happens, that after the three years, they may well be back in the family home in very similar circumstances. So in, in, in some ways... That, that 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 doesn't change what what does change is signing on the line for a huge amount of money for purpose built student accommodation moving house i mean is it a good idea from a public health point of view to be undertaking that mass migration of people uh in that couple of weeks in september we may well decide as a country that's a terrible idea and the more you add all of these things up the more you say to yourself why would a student if if they can avoid it do it now now i have no doubt mary that you're right that some people will want to go in regardless of the disruption and some people will regard the student finance package albeit in the form of a loan as better than the alternatives depending on their financial situation and where they live but if you can avoid it I have no idea why a student would want to go into the chaos in September it would be different I think just to say if if if, if somehow there was a pause and, you know, th- something happened where the whole sector kind of, you know, went into cryogenic freezing and re-emerged in January. I mean, uh, whether or not there's a, a mass deferral, like you're saying, Jim, or, or, or even a, a pause or pushing back the academic year, uh, I mean, you mentioned the word bailout. Nick, I mean, w- we'd be talking about such a large financial hole in the, the sector's finances that it, it's hard to see how many universities would survive this. I wonder, is the is the kind of push on unconditional offers kind of, in some ways, kind of putting the cart before the horse? Because, you know, without the promise of a uh, of some kind of bailout, universities are going to try and need, trying to shore up their position, come, come what may. I've never believed the government's line on bailouts, even in less worrying times. You know, that when they've said we will never uh, help a university in dire financial circumstances, I- I've never believed that because universities are too important to let them tumble over. Um, and of course, it's doubly true in a crisis like this. If, if small companies and charities and other organisations are falling over, at the end of this crisis, our universities will be even more important uh, at the end than they were at the beginning. Um, so, uh, and I, I, I mean, I've had a bit of an argument with Jim this week on Twitter about some of this stuff. I, I see the world very differently to Jim on some of the things he was talking about. So, for example, um, if my children were 18 and if they listened to me, uh, I wouldn't be encouraging them to defer because if everybody defers uh, until the following year, yes, that's bad for institutions. It's also bad for students, I think, because you'll be trying to enter in a very competitive environment. So this cohort of students have been told by people like me uh, that they're a part of a lucky generation. They'll find going to university easy because they're part of a small cohort. Uh, uh, and if, uh, of course, the opposite has turned out to be true, they're part of an unlucky cohort. There might be some unfairnesses in the grades they get. Uh, if they all hold over entry until 2021, then there'll be a double entry period and it'll be even harder to get in. Um, and, and I also, I, I mean, I think the fuss, to be completely honest, I think the fuss about unconditional offers this week is a bit of pleasing the crowds. I think it's a bit of a fuss about nothing because we know that later in the system, uh, if universities have given someone a conditional offer and the, the person doesn't quite get the conditional offer, they can let them in anyway. Um, 
I, I, I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of threats being made to universities if they go on turning conditional offers into unconditional offers. But if you go back and look at the Higher Education and Research Act, as I did this morning, and look at what it says about autonomy, it's not actually clear that, that uh, the Office of Students has many powers uh, when it comes to uh, admissions, uh, because autonomy in the legislation is defined as being around admissions. So, so I think there's much, personally, I think there's much more important issues uh, uh, around the sector and coronavirus than, than whether some young people have had their offers converted to unconditional offers. There needs to, there needs to be a quid pro quo. If there is going to be um, a big bailout of universities, you know, it won't be a blank check and it, and it won't be for nothing. And I think universities are going to almost certainly have to sacrifice some autonomy. Um, I mean, Mary mentioned the idea of student number controls. That seems like an obvious way of helping smooth out the, the, the volatility that's about to hit. Um, I wonder if, if that, that question about autonomy starts to look a bit old-fashioned in, in that context. I mean, we're, we're nationalising you know, most of the economy kind of before our eyes. And I wonder if, I wonder if universities are going to have to give something away in that, uh, you know, in, in, that, in that bargain, Nick. Well, there's a lot between government handouts and letting a university fall over. You know, there's loan guarantees, there's lending money, um, all, all sorts of uh, things. Um, for me, what matters, yes, the health of the institution matters. But for me, what also matters is that this cohort of young people expecting to enter university this year are not punished as a result of things that are no fault of their own. So, so if universities are struggling, I'd like to see the support put in at an institutional level rather than by forcing changes to student behavior and putting sort of punishing the students um but you're absolutely right that that um you know universities uh, well the government will run out of money if it just gives everybody money uh, uh, willy-nilly um and one thing that i have said is that look i don't think universities should have special treatment but I think the sort of help that is given to other big parts of our economy should also be on offer for universities uh, on an equal basis, because, as I said before, uh, universities will be even more important to our country at the end of this than they were at the beginning. No, I, I mean, just just to say, the thing that really strikes me is that uh, clearly, to some extent, the two week moratorium thing, we're expecting something to Im- more to emerge, you know, from a co- on a coordinated basis at the end of those two weeks uh, that, that we either can imagine or can't imagine at this point. But but, you know, if at the end of the two weeks we go back to business as usual with everybody competing over students and my God, will they be competing if they're starting to, you know, get cancellations from international students and they're starting to do projections assuming that international mobility will be in free fall. If we then get, in a fortnight's time, the the sort of cutthroat competition that we usually get, you know, uh, around the kind of clearing and adjustment period, one, I think that looks terrible, but two, I don't know how a student would be able to make the sort of informed, accurate judgment that OFS says is absolutely vital. For a start, because they won't even know what's on offer from their university. University, and they certainly know won't know whether they're even going to be allowed to attend that university. So th- th- this whole, uh, uh, you know, I-, I have some sympathy with Nick's position uh, around, you know, how tight or how loose the market is in terms of a generation of students trying to get into uni. But the idea that in less than a fortnight's time, that kind of guillotine will be lifted and everyone will be, you know, doing their normal things that they do during clearing is, I think, terrifying. And I, I, I you know, just just to kind of add into the to the conversation with, you know, large swathes of the population worrying about their family income, <clears throat> you know, there's a, the, there is an affordability question as well for, for families who typically subsidise 
um, their children quite sometimes quite significantly through three years at university. So I, you know, I just, you know, as I said, I think there are a lot of unknown unknowns about how people are going to behave and react. Um, <clears throat> and I, I'm inclined to uh, agree with Jim that if the if the sector looks as if it's trying to kind of muscle in to hoover up students, um, that will be very unedifying. And at a time when I think the sector has got a real opportunity to put some reputational credit back in the bank through this crisis, um, I think that that would be uh, very unwise. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. My um, name is Lia Blajward and I'm a senior lecturer at Nottingham Trent University. The blog was really an opportunity to step outside the busyness of life at the moment and the frantic preparations to switch from being a face-to-face campus to an online one. It um, reflects on a piece of research about digital citizenship. My colleague Kim Winter and I explored students' perceptions of how face-to-face university courses use digital technology to prepare them for collaboration in digital environments. And we were kind of puzzled that in the experiences students shared, There was less emphasis than we would have um, expected on collaborative online learning, on belonging to an online community and generally reaching out to make professional and civically engaged connections. So um, the blog is really a celebration of some really good examples of digital citizenship we've witnessed recently in the higher education sector. And it's a message of hope that the collaboration and civic engagement we so much value in our face-to-face world is something we will recreate for our students' benefit in the digital environment. Now, in a widely praised move from Research England, it's been announced that this year's REF is now on hold. Nick, tell us what's going on. So, if there's one thing the current crisis shows, it's the importance of university research. I mean, if you think of the epidemiologists, for example, who are all over our airwaves telling us what's happening, um, you know, it really does show a lot of our good quality research lies in our universities and we're relying on them more than ever. And of course, the way that the quality of that research is judged, one way anyway, is through the research excellence framework that happens every few years. And Research England have now announced that will be delayed until further notice. Um, they've said that part of the reason for that is that staff need the time to focus on other issues. So the crucial thing is the submission deadline of late November no longer applies. There'll be a later date uh, told to us at some other point. Um, One or two things survive. So the staff census date, which is the end of July, stays the same, um, which is uh, uh, important, I think, because it will discourage um, uh, certain unwanted behaviours, perhaps. Um, And I think, as as you said in your introduction, the Research England showing admirable flexibility here, as indeed other regulators have been uh, doing. Um, And it also reflects the pause in research uh, not linked to the crisis that many universities have have got underway. Um, I mean, it's not all good. You know, it adds to the list of uncertainties that we as a sector are facing. We still don't know uh, what the government response to Augur is. We still don't know what the Shirley Pierce review of the TEF says. We still don't know if the National Student Survey results this year will have much validity given the strikes and now the crisis. Um, indeed, we called this week for league tables to be paused because of the level of uncertainty around. Um, but I think, uh, I think in general, what uh, Research England have done will be welcomed by people up and down the UK. And it's a UK-wide decision, of course, not just an England decision. I think you're right, Nick, to, to contextualise this in, in kind of the uh, the power of, of research and science that, that is kind of right front and centre in, in everyone's uh, kind of in everyone's eyes uh, over the last few weeks. And I think that, um, 
you know, I think it's it's clearly a sensible move by Research England. But I wonder if, um, you know, I wonder if we could have newfound respect for for research and science in society as as a result of all this. There is an unprecedented mobilisation going on right now amongst uh, the, the the research community to to fight. COVID nineteen from from the the hard kind of epidemiology to uh, the social aspects to all sorts of all sorts of things, um, and I mean it's it's clearly right that you know there's not an additional regulatory burden slowing down that that kind of work. But and I wonder if coming out of this one of the one of the small upsides um, you know might be a kind of hard shift in in, in public opinion and uh, an understanding about the importance of, of of these disciplines and the places they exist, which is a, a lot of it happens inside universities, Mary. Um, I think I think this is really interesting, Mark. And and you know the sector has a bit of a love hate relationship with the ref, doesn't it? But one of the things I've noticed over the last <clears throat> couple of weeks is that you know what, what I've always felt is a bit of an echo chamber for researchers. You know, in other words, they do their research and talk to each other about it and review each other's papers and read each other's papers. Suddenly, seems to have been opened up and quite a few papers being um, res- uh, being published. Uh, without being peer reviewed and the peer review taking place on on social media and i i, I think i've got a, a hope that uh a, you know one of the positive outcomes from this crisis is that uh research will become much more visible and and uh widely shared with the public and and less of a kind of um internal echo chamber for the sector you know from a, from a kind of macro political point of view um we we had two or three months uh well we've had a couple of years now of experts being a problem you know public servants being a problem the bbc being a problem so many things suddenly look like they've been turned on their head and this really is the you know the kind of time for university research to shine the 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 the, 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 the thing i'm worried about in all of this is the position of pgr students uh particularly uh, the, the, the PGR students for whom funding is less secure and where they haven't got guarantees at the moment, uh, because so many of them can't continue their research and are kind of trapped and, and, and aren't sure about, uh, what is happening. And, and do bear in mind that so many of them were getting through their experience by, you know, doing sessional teaching, some of which has now disappeared or some of which is being, you know, slashed fairly rapidly. Uh, as a result of, you know, people having to shore up their, their finances. So, you know, I, I do think that uh, for all of everyone's efforts around the kind of student experience of the past couple of weeks, I'm very worried about, um, you know, PG, uh, uh, research students and the kind of position they're in. I, I agree. And of course, many of them will have visa worries as well, because many of them will be international. Um, I, I think there could be a, a, a strange gap here, which is life becomes much harder for PGR students. Um, I actually think the, the we could see a big increase in PGT students taught master's courses uh, because who wants to enter the labour market now and of course there's master's loans available for them um, but you're right yeah if you're if you're a PhD student or a postdoc um, or indeed if you're a, an academic on a precarious contract now is a especially tough time. RFS has a new look and feel this week uh, Jim tell us all about it. The first kind of OFS intervention was to write to everyone to say how many cases have you got on campus and then, you know, all of those institutions that have franchise partners were scratching their head, you know, hitting the phones. Um, the second intervention was more of a broad brush to say, look, this is the sort of approach we're going to take and, and it signalled a kind of, you know, relaxation of some regulation to focus on the crisis and I think that was broadly welcomed. So we've got the first output of that kind of pivot in approach uh, now, which is... Um, the, the the relaxation of a bunch of 
uh, regulatory requirements, lots of which are around data, but crucially the creation uh, of a new reportable event, which is absolutely focused on the sense that there might be financial impacts to all of this crisis. And and it centres on liquidity over 30 days within a three-month period. We've got, uh, me and DK have got a piece up on the uh, site about it now the the thing that's fascinating about it is it starts to raise all sorts of questions in a, in a really kind of intense way that we have been asking for some time so if you think about a year ago 18 months ago if you think a couple of years ago actually when michael barber turned up to uh wonkfest and was talking about um you know some institutions will need to get their financial house in order and you know there was talk of that's right no bailouts there was talk of some institutions you know being on the edge and having to get you know bridging loans with the old hefty powers and so on Think back to then that one of the things that, that a number of us were saying was there's a there's a fine line between being public about this sort of stuff with the public conditions of registration, uh, because, you know, you want a regulator to behave in public and, you know, that that would provide uh, good warning for students and parents making choices. But. There's also obviously a, a, a pressure to be private about this stuff because you don't want to create a run on the bank. Now, it was bad enough then, but imagine the moral quandary now if OFS gets a number of these new reportable events, which would signal urgent cash flow problems. And, and remember, we're not just talking about mainstream universities here. Think about the long tail of the OFS register and, and the idea that it's supposed to treat them at least equitably, all the providers equitably. On the one hand, if 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 it's if the nature of its regulation over this new reportable event is quite confidential on the basis that would give providers an opportunity to, you know, survive, recruit, whatever, uh, then if that provider falls over, what parents and MPs and students will be saying will be, you knew it was close to the edge as a regulator and you didn't tell us. Whereas, <laughs> and, and so you see the problem, yeah? This, this, this deep moral quandary involved in whether you're public and you provide information to to the people that are making choices, which is a really important OFS duty, or whether you're private and you put in place a series of measures that allows an institution to take action to survive uh, without causing a run on the bank. And, and you know, I really... I, re- I really wouldn't want to be, uh, you know, the kind of officials or the committee or whatever that has, has to make some of those choices in the next few months. I, I agree uh, 100% with Jim, but I just want to stand back a little bit. Um, just as we said, Research England have acted in a very mature, constructive, responsible way uh, on the Research Excellence Framework. Uh, I think the change in tone that we've seen from the Office for Students, for example, in terms of their correspondence with institutions since the crisis began, has been incredibly welcome. Uh, I mean, it does, of course, show that universities that were calling for a more constructive relationship with the IFS before the crisis probably had a, a very good case. Um, but it does seem to me, you know, a crisis really tests people's mettle. Some people come out of a crisis proving their worth and others uh, don't. And this is the really f- for, uh, the first uh, really, really big crisis the IFS has had to deal with. And I think uh, so far it's, it's doing all the right things. Um, I, I really, really regret uh, that the OFS has never had, for example, the regional presence that Hefke had. When I ask vice-chancellors, what do you most miss about Hefke? They very often say the regional presence, the regional understanding, the sense that our bit of the country is different to other bits of the country, the ability to test ideas out informally. And I suspect the OFS themselves are now regretting not having that regional presence. Um, so not uh, things aren't perfect, 
But, you know, if the OFS had kept up its old approach in the current crisis, I think people would be questioning its its very existence. And, and they're not doing that. And we need them to take the approach they are taking. Um, uh, DK and Jim's piece on on the web, or the wonky website today, um, you know, goes into all the detail. But I, and I think the overall approach is what's really important. And, and there's something about um, the OFS not having a uh, relationship credit in the bank isn't there which is which is what you're saying nick that 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 regional um you know the regional presence really really did that um and i'd be interested in what others think about uuk's role in all of this because it it feels to me as if uh uk has come to the fore a bit more as genuinely as a kind of a, a a sector sector negotiator um, because the regulator has always kept um, rather at arm's length from from individual universities. I think I think it is a I think this shows a, uh, a, a particularly given um, the, the lack of Hefke and its its role often as a kind of bri- it often talked about itself as a bridging um, a kind of actor between government and universities. That's clearly not what OFS is there to do. OFS is there to regulate universities, um, and a, you know, very different approach for, for a number of different reasons. And, and you know, Nick, you've you pointed out some of them. Um, that does, I, I, and I've long maintained since the abolition of, of Hefke that that w- should give UK a a kind of stronger central role in um, you know filling that that bridging. Um, and that you know that can take on a lot of different things. You know, it's kind of the convening of the policy conversation that Hefke used to do very substantially. That that kind of vanished um, uh, along with them and that kind of consensus building around um, about, around big issues. Um, and then, of course, there is the fact that, you know, in Whitehall, there is very limited bandwidth, and particularly in a crisis like this. So DFE is going to be taking measures that affect um, universities through the, through the COVID-19 crisis, as they already have and, and are likely to do plenty more of. Then, you know, UK is obviously the first port of call to test out ideas and, and kind of uh, kind of uh, uh, do some of the backfill of the thinking about the implications, uh, and I, you know, I understand that a lot of that is um, is going on, kind of be- going on behind the scenes. But I mean, whether or not, um, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, as, as Anthony Selden has pointed out um, on, on on Nick's blog, um, UK can can kind of be sustainable as, as just a voice of vice chancellors. Is I think a kind of much sharper question in in this context, given um, kind of the huge now uh, pressing uh, pressing uncertainties and, and difficulties that institutions are going to face. Um, and, and, uh, and and Mark, can I can I just say, in, in terms of contrasts, I, th- I think that that point is really really important. So you know when you're sat on a train and the advice is, even if you've got nothing to say, if you're the train you know person, keep communicating with people because otherwise they get frustrated. And I think if you compare what AOC has been doing in recent days as opposed to UUK. No doubt UUK is doing amazing work behind the scenes, but it has been awfully quiet back to the sector. And I think that reflects the, you know, the kind of position it, it is usually in, the nature of its governance and so on. But I think it would really help if UUK was doing some, was being a bit more public. The, the, the other contrast I think that is really interesting is the contrast between, obviously to some extent, the, the, the funding council in Scotland and the regulator in England. You, you know, the change in tone I think lots of people have welcomed. But without solid promises from DFE or OFS of financial support to universities, we are still in a position where all of the communications that have come out of OFS are, if you think you are close to the edge,
pledge financially, you will have to tell us and we will take action. You compare that to the tone that, that is coming out of SFC and it's, you know, if you want to talk to us, if you're worried, you know, we will support you. Uh, and, you know, I, I know that reflects the legislation and the difference in role. But, you know, without a, with, as I say, with that promise of financial support, right now, lots of people are thinking all they've had from OFS is we've got to tell them when we're in trouble and then, you know, they might throw us off the register. And I'm, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure that can hold. I'd like to, to throw an additional spanner into this, which is, which is governance. And we talk about this a lot on the, on the show and on the site. And we've talked about governance being one of the deficit areas um, in, in the sector. And there's been lots of efforts to try and improve it. But we're talking about, you know, really, really big decisions uh, that universities have to take. And we're talking about um, where responsibility sits. And it seems like the question about governance now, you know, will, will be even more front and centre. Um, I mean, Mary, do you think... Boards of governors are, you know, as they stand, kind of equipped to deal with these kind of things. Well, I mean, look, uh, the, the, I'm pretty good on the tech, and I have found, you know, using seven different video conferencing systems over the past few weeks, and you know, trying to help either me or, or, or often participants through that difficult enough. So the idea that governing bodies, sometimes of which have got thirty, thirty-five people on them, are meeting as regularly as, for instance, the charity commission is advising charities to meet, which is at, the, at least once a week at the moment, I just think is 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 very, very difficult, and I don't know whether there are subcommittees i don't know whether there is regular stuff going out to governors in in lieu of meetings but you know the idea that governance is operating in the way the you know the terms of reference suggest uh, at the moment I, I think is probably for the bird and and just to add to that jim um you know the governance machine in universities has got quite a time lag built into it um so you know so i think uh, universities that kind of send all their council papers and uh, committee papers, you know, up through a series of um, checks and balances and, and sign-offs and so on, um, they're going to have to get used to doing much more immediate communications with their with their governing bodies. And, and that, you know, that is, doesn't come naturally to, um, to, to universities. And of course, um, those of us who are on governing bodies, you know, we, we want today's information. We don't want something which was written three weeks ago and is frankly completely out of date. Good governance is often quite slow. It's deliberative. It's, it's, it's um, you know, building an evidence base. It's learning slowly. Um, and in a crisis, slow doesn't work. So uh, I actually think we might see some delegations of powers from governing bodies to um, uh, senior management teams and then sort of fixing it after the event. In, in other words, explaining, you know, delegating some more responsibility to senior management teams with a feedback loop to governing bodies. Because if you look at the advice coming out of the Office for Students, it's, you know, you've got to make decisions with the best interests of students and institutions in in mind. And, and I think sometimes that needs quick decisions and governing bodies are not always good at making quick decisions. And look, the other thing I'd say is um, I am on a trustee board of a student's union and on Monday night I was in a meeting and I wasn't really concentrating because I was thinking about all of the other things I had to do in my job. And I suspect that's true for members of university governing bodies, many of whom are running businesses or charities. Or Do you know what I mean? There's lots and lots of things going on here. But one of the things that did strike me, though, halfway through the meeting when I thought, no, right, come on, Jim, you've got to concentrate. This is quite serious for this student's union. Um, one of the things that did strike me, though, 
Sammies, I have seen from a charity point of view plenty of stuff from NCVO, uh, from some of the third sector bodies and from the Charity Commission directly aimed at me, specifically around reminding me of my governance responsibilities during this crisis. And, and I do think that right now one of the things that all of this does show up is just how little there is for members of governing bodies reminding them of their responsibilities, how they might have to change in a scenario like this, how delegation of powers might have to work in the middle of a crisis as Nick refers to and so on and so on we have a real hole I think in that kind of governance performance space and I think we shouldn't forget how much experience there is on many of our governing bodies you know I know in the past we've worried for example that there aren't enough young people on our governing bodies and and, uh, I accept all of those things but the fact that we have a lot of um, quite experienced people on our governing bodies does mean they have often at their own organisations been through crises and they may actually have some very good advice for the management teams of their institutions while not crossing the line between uh, a governing body's role and, and, and day-to-day management. Um, but I do think, you know, I've long thought the CUC, the Committee of University Chairs, um, needs beefing up. I think they do very good work. We've, we've running a blog on the Happy website this week from Chris Sayers, the head of it. Um, they do very, very good work and they did it over senior management pay, for example, recently. But by golly, does a crisis shine a spotlight on governance? And, uh, you know, I think the Committee of University Chairs uh, should be a much bigger organisation. I think the sector should fund it appropriately. Um, one, of the, one of the thorniest um, issues to emerge in, in all this is about student accommodation and, and what happens to students that have been isolating in halls um, and campus closures around them. Uh, and, and then now particularly um, the issue of uh, rent, uh, who pays, when, uh, when and how. Mary, talk us through what's going on with all this. Yeah, I'm afraid, <clears throat> as with a lot we've spoken about this morning, there's quite a lot to get anxious about here. I think there's about half a million students in uh, student accommodation. So that covers university halls, private sector, purpose-built student accommodation, PBSA, and private rented. Um, so I think, first of all, student welfare and uh, safety is an issue, um, particularly those who have to stay in their student accommodation, that people who can't go home, can't get home for various reasons, or those have got nowhere to go because they're estranged, or even those who are already self-isolating for one reason or another. Um, And as far as I can see, I think the sector's moved quite quickly to make sure that these students um, are looked after. Then there's a whole load of stuff about rents and contracts. Um, Students who have to stay on beyond their rent contracts, students who've signed contracts starting this summer for their accommodation next year, those who can't afford their rents, um, and those who, uh, perhaps not surprisingly, don't want to pay for accommodation that they're prevented from uh, living in by by the virus emergency. And then not to mention all the students who've had to leave their digs in a big hurry and have left their stuff behind. Um, So, I mean, obviously, universities have got control over their own rental accommodation and uh, presumably will be able to make um, suitable arrangements fairly easily. And and, uh, then on the private sector bit, um, it was good to see Unite um, announcing fair arrangements for its um, tenants. But there'll be many PSBAs who are not in a position to be quite so generous. Um, but I think the real the real difficult area is the private rented sector, which is a bit of a, a wild west and of course has got little or no central coordination. Um, so I think this is a really difficult area and I imagine that universities will need to stand up some teams specifically to deal with accommodation issues and, and do their best to support students in this in this difficult area. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, uh, lots of universities moved relatively quickly to say uh, we won't charge you for the third term. Um, 
Some universities have really dragged their heels, and I suspect that's because of finances. And that's, you know, that's got to be a worry from all sorts of perspectives if you think about it. But I imagine that most universities, where they own the accommodation or at least control it, will follow suit pretty rapidly. There's a little wrinkle in there, by the way, about requiring students to, who've left all their stuff in their rooms to come back and, you know, travel across the country. I don't know what that looks like from a public health point of view. The PBSA, of course, it splits into two kind of chunks here. The, the, the stuff that's owned is relatively easy. So Unite, which now, of course, also owns uh, Liberty Living, issued a, you know, a, a warning to the stock exchange, uh, to the FTSE 100, and said, look, from a reputation point of view, we're going to have to do this. Um, but remember, lots of the PBSA brands don't own the buildings. What they what they are actually doing is management companies for little investment units. And, you know, I did an article on this on the site a few months back. And, it, and, and you know, that's pretty hidden, that issue. But my God, does it expose it when suddenly you want to exert some level of control over it, either from a public health point of view or from this kind of point of view in terms of, you know, easing people's budgets. I've seen some terrible assumptions from all sorts of people that because the third term loan is coming in, everyone will be able to afford it. And I'm just not sure it's that simple for lots and lots of um, families. But the main thing I've been reflecting on as, as I've watched this kind of unfold across the course of the week is a bit like where we are in terms of student fees going into September or even to some extent now. Where is the risk where who bears the risk yeah and, and at the moment lot much of the risk despite the fact that we've got a risk-based regulator and we've got some regulation around accommodation and so on almost all of the risk in lots of this stuff is with the student um, and the truth is what you would probably want if you were to encourage students to sign up for university this September is a way of pooling the risk so if an institutional course fell over you weren't depending on student protection plans you had something more collective in financial in terms of insurance or something and and the same, I think, is true of accommodation, where you don't want all of the risk to be on a student who happens to have signed a contract, many of whom, by the way, have signed a contract for next academic year already and are told they can't wriggle out of it. You don't want all the risk to be on the student who may well by September be told they can't ever move in. And and, and that kind of throws up the whole area, doesn't it, that accommodation as you know a cost, uh, an income stream for various different parties and so on. Uh, nobody has really focused on that as an area that, that probably needs a lot more organisation and possibly regulation as well. And of course, many of the issues raised by the current crisis are exactly the same in every country across the world and, and countries are learning from one another. But so much of uh, our higher education system is shaped by the fact that our residential model is so much more prevalent than it is in other countries. So this is an issue where there's less to learn from other countries and we may you know that's why i think we're finding it a bit more challenging than some of the other issues raised by the current crisis and there are all sorts of advantages about so many students living away from home you know in terms of independence and and, uh, and uh, exper you know meeting people from different parts of the country and the world etc etc uh, um well well uh, you know uh, a crisis the crises uh, shine a spotlight on different things and I, I hope the world will revert to norm at some point but um but at the moment these these issues are very very uh, challenging indeed including as you say Jim for people who are um, booking out accommodation for the next academic year so that's about it for this week remember to delve deeper into anything we discussed today you'll find links in the show notes don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for The Wonky Show via iTunes or your favourite Android podcast directory or find the feed you need on wonky.com slash podcast and if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show please drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch so thanks to Nick, Mary and Jim and everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen behind the scenes. And until next week, look after yourselves. Music.